trying to work our way through numbers, so slowly, but I'm enjoying it. <clears throat> we just bow for a word of prayer. God, we, we do look to you for the coming year. We thank you for your mercies and faithfulness through the past year, difficult as it may have been. We, we thank you for how you have faithfully kept and, and, uh, and held and, and maintained and, and provided for us all all along the way. We look to you for the coming year. We look to you for even our needs right now this morning as we gather before you to hear your word. We pray, Lord, that you'd speak to our hearts. And thank you so much for your loving faithfulness, for your presence in and with us. uh, How glad we are that you have made us your very own. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I am. Uh, <clears throat> I had prepared these thoughts um, originally, thinking that Ben was and Emmy were here, and uh, but I see Derek is here too, so that's good because I was going to do quick quick review, and this is kind of bring him up to speed with everybody else. Perfect. All right. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm taxing everybody because I review a lot, <laughs> and everybody else get can just about. You know, mouth the words as I say them all the way through with the first half of my message because I've said it so many times. The first, uh, the first, really, the first six chapters of the book of Numbers forms a, a section uh, to itself, and and it is in these uh, first six chapters is the organization and the structure of the camp, how God has organized His people. Now He brought them out of Egypt. Uh, a bunch of slaves set up their government in the book of Exodus so that they are a true nation, set up their worship and their uh, the duty of the priests in the book that is called Leviticus, which is actually about the priests, not the Levites. But anyway, set up the duty of the priests and the worship order so the people, uh, for the people in the book of Leviticus. Now here in Numbers, he begins by setting up the military uh, and the and establishing the structure and framework uh, around which the camp would, uh, the, the people would camp all around the tabernacle, because the tabernacle was to be in the center. That was where God would dwell in the midst of his people. And so here we are, this book, in the wilderness, and God organizes the whole arrangement of his household and himself in the midst. That is such a perfect uh, uh, analogy and parallel with our age right now, the New Testament church, with the, uh, with the Lord in the midst and his household, his house, organized and structured according to the principles that he has laid down in the scriptures. And we've noted over and over uh, how obviously it's important to God, structure and format, because he um, spends many chapters and goes to much detail to organize his people around him in the way he wants it done. And there's purposes behind it. Uh, The first part of his organization is designed to uh, provide a strong defense for them. And then the second part is is, uh, designed to enable them to move efficiently and and march efficiently through the wilderness. They weren't uh, intending to live in the wilderness. They were intending to pass through the wilderness. And so this enabled them to move 
through the wilderness to the promised land. And then the third part of uh, his organizational structure system, if you were following with me through those days, was uh, to provide for the worship and the service of the Lord in the holy things. Um, and it, it occurs to me that the, all of the organizational structure uh, formats that God puts into play is not organization for organization's sake. Every detail of his organizational structure is a lesson, is a picture of a spiritual reality. That's the cool part of it. And that's the same with the church, isn't it? The New Testament principles, they're not just how to operate as a New Testament for the sake of knowing how to operate or being efficient. No, every ordinance, every detail of the design of the principles of the New Testament church are designed to teach spiritual truth and spiritual realities. They're designed to bring us into a deeper understanding and appreciation of what he has done for us and what he is doing for us and what he will continue to do for us and, uh, and deepen and, and enrich our relationship with him. And that's what his organization seems to be focusing on always. And so the, all of these principles it, it are, are, are powerfully important for us and maintain and follow, even practice. But anyway, then there was chapters 5 and 6 that, that uh, there's some housekeeping we talked about that had to be taken care of. Things had to be cleaned up. If the Lord is going to be in the midst, you can't have defilement in the camp. And so the lepers had to move out. Those with an issue had to move out. Those that are defiled by contact with a dead body had to move out of the camp and uh, because the Lord is in the midst of that camp. And defilement and the Lord do not, you know, holiness becometh the house of the Lord forever. And so these uh, defiling elements had to be moved out of the camp. Now, each of those are teaching us lessons and, uh, and are, are important for us, but we aren't going through all of that again. <clears throat> then there was also conflict within the camp had to be dealt with because the Lord is in the midst and we are brethren and, and so forth. And so chapter five then talks about how to deal with conflict in in-house conflict. And then it goes on to talk about the uh, test of infidelity, uh, the test for infidelity, because uh, there, there is the possibility of a, of a uh, wandering of affections. And, and so, and, and the husband, in that chapter, is jealous of the affection of his wife. And, uh, and so he wants to uh, make sure, he wants to make sure that her affections are true, that there's no secret turning aside and betrayal of his love for her. And we, and we thought about what a, an interesting and actually a heartwarming to see that, to think of that in the light of how God has his affection he is jealous of our affections and, in fact, has tests for us to make sure that, uh, that we know, as well as all would know, that our affections are true and not turned aside. Then there's the law of the Nazarite in chapter 6. So if all of the cleansing and housekeeping in chapter 5 is negative, chapter 6 is very positive. Uh, that special dedication by any old Joe Blow in a camp could offer special gift of dedication and service to the Lord, and it would be accepted under the 
protocol, if you will, of the rules of the Nazarite. That makes it, makes it work, makes it acceptable. So that all being put in place and the whole organizational structure put in place and camp cleansed and so forth, the end of chapter 6 then, <coughs> excuse me, the end of chapter 6, the Lord puts his blessing upon the people through, the, through Aaron. So that, that Aaronic blessing, the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord, and so forth. That, that beautiful uh, benediction upon people is offered to them at the end of that chapter 6, when everything is now in order, and God's blessing then rests on that company. And he says at the end of that, that's, that's how you shall bless them, he says, and I will bless them. That's a, the Lord commits himself to, I will, I will bless him. I will honor that blessing. Hmm. Well, <clears throat> I don't, um, chapter 7, uh, chapter 7 is kind of like almost a little pause. It's not really, but in chapter 7 then, the princes offer. They bring their offering to the Lord and their gifts, the things that they have they, they wanted to bring an offering to the Lord that, well, it was from their own volition. They brought these wagons. They thought this would be helpful. This would be useful for the traveling through the wilderness and for carrying out the work of God. We will offer these wagons, and God accepted their offering. And then it details their gifts, uh, about 80 verses plus, uh, detailing each of those gifts. And each of them are the same as the one before it. And, uh, and the same as the one after. And God does not diminish the value of any one of them, even though they're all identical. He mentions every one of them in every detail. This is a gift that they had given. I think that's wonderful. And I, uh, I just wanted to mention that one more time. So we come then uh, at the end of chapter 7 with the marvelous little verse that's inserted in there that after the gifts are all offered and everything, Moses goes into the tabernacle and he and he hears the voice of the one that spoke to him off the, off of the mercy seat, off of the ark between the cherubim. He hears his very voice of God, that marvelous interaction between Moses and the living transcendent God of heaven speaking to him and he's speaking back and they have a two-way conversation there in the temple. What a wonderful uh, reality stands before the people of God. And so with that in view, they light the lampstands in chapter 8. This is actually, boom, goes way back to months before. So it's not in chronological order, because, but instructs them to light the lampstand and give some detail on the lampstand in the first part of chapter 8, we find it to be a beaten work of one piece, and we find it to be shedding light in the holy place against itself, in other words, revealing itself in its own beauty, uh, and lighting then, obviously, the holy place where the priests would minister in the holy things. Uh, then, this, then the Levites are sanctified and... Uh, cleansed and sanctified, ready to carry on the work that they are. We're getting ready to move. The, light, the lamp is lit and the priests are able to do their ministry and prepare things to go. The Levites are cleansed now and sanctified in chapter 8. And so 
we come to chapter 9, and before anybody can take a step in the direction that they're headed, they're going to uh, observe the Passover. And so the Passover precedes any movement in that direction, a time of remembrance, a time of looking back at how it is that they are there and how God has brought them there and, and what uh, how certain they can be uh, that he's going to take them the rest of the way. <clears throat> and there's some there's some important details and we went over that and I won't go through it again that there were some irregularities because in the wilderness everything is not perfect and so some people were defiled and they couldn't and so God gives them graciously the second month so that they can keep the Passover also because it is that important it is that important and so the worship of the Lord and remembrance of the Lord is that important that uh, he would make sure, he make provision, special provision, so that everyone can be included in participation in that marvelous feast and that time of, of uh, worship and remembrance. Uh, making certain that not one soul misses out. <laughs> that is amazing and wonderful to contemplate how important the Passover celebration was to God. And it, and it teaches us some things about uh, how important our worship is to our God. So now they, they have celebrated the Passover in chapter 9 and down to verse 14. And now it's, it's really getting close to time to move, but I guess the question is, where are we going? Where are we headed to and how are we going to get there? Because this is new territory for the people. And so verse 15, uh, chapter 9 and verse 15. And on that day that the tabernacle was reared up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, namely the tent of the testimony. <coughs> <coughs> There was upon the tabernacle, as it were, the appearance of fire until the morning. And so it was always the cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. So if you're wondering how you're going to know where to go, introduce the cloud. Here we have the cloud is introduced uh, into the study. <clears throat> this is not hard to interpret, is it? This is an obvious uh, this is an obvious picture of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament counterpart, the Holy Spirit upon us. Let's just read a couple of verses. I'm going to flip to John chapter 14. <clears throat> John chapter 14. Remember the Lord Jesus said, uh, if you love me, keep my commandments in verse 15. And in verse 16 he says, and I will pray the Father... And he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye shall know him, for he dwelleth with you, shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. So the Lord Jesus promised that he would send the Holy Spirit. And, and indeed he did so at Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit came to abide and to dwell in us. 
He is that uh, marvelous, ever abiding, never leaving, never departing, always there presence of God in our hearts and life. He is upon us like the cloud was there on the tabernacle that came down and settled on the on the tabernacle. And so it was always, says the scriptures, so it was always. That's the emphasis of this first introduction to the cloud. It's abidingness. It stayed. Paul says to the Corinthians, what? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, which you have of God? It is a, a wonderful reality of the Holy Spirit upon a believer. And he indwells us. He comes upon us and does not leave us. The abiding presence of the Spirit of God in all believers is a critical and wonderful fundamental truth. I, I suspect that it would be worthwhile for us to do some studies on the Holy Spirit. We haven't probably pressed that for some time, but uh, maybe the Lord will lead us into that in the, in the near future. <clears throat> we don't see a cloud today, but in Romans 8.16 we read these words, The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. We maybe don't see a cloud, but we know the Spirit of God is in us. He is able to communicate to us his presence and therefore our acceptance before God. It's, an, it's, it's a reality. And then, the, and then the Lord also said in, in uh, John 14 and 26, he says, but the Comforter, which is the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. And so one of the functions of the Holy Spirit in us is to teach us and to guide us and direct us in the way that we should go. Aha, uh -huh. that brings us back to Numbers. Numbers uh, chapter 9 and verse 17. The next little paragraph about the cloud in verse 17 it says, And when the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, then after that the children of Israel journeyed. And in the place where the cloud abode, there the children of Israel pitched their tents. At the commandment of the Lord the children of Israel journeyed. And at the commandment of the Lord they pitched. As long as the cloud abode upon the tabernacle, they rested in their tents. And when the cloud tarried long upon the tabernacle many days, then the children of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and journeyed not. And so it was, when the cloud was a few days upon the tabernacle, according to the commandment of the Lord, they abode in their tents. And according to the commandment of the Lord, they journeyed. That's the next little paragraph concerning the cloud. And it's telling us that the cloud was the answer to how to go through the wilderness where to go, when to camp, where to camp. The cloud led them through the wilderness. When it, when it lifted up off the tabernacle, everybody prepared to journey, and they followed it through the wilderness. Now, that is that Holy Spirit of God uh, in our day teaching us and guiding us uh, in the way that we should go and leading us all along. <clears throat> the cloud is their guide. And... Uh, when the cloud moved, the children of Israel were to follow. 
And when the clouds stopped, they were to rest. Now, that sounds simple enough, but you know how things are. Uh, it brings up a fact that there's two sides to this business of guidance of the Holy Spirit. There's two sides to it. On the one hand, the fact that the cloud was ever present and that the cloud would move in the, and lead them faithfully to the next place where they're supposed to take camp, all the, that facts, those facts teach us about the faithfulness of God, obviously. He is ever present, and he, and he never leaves us or forsakes us. He takes us carefully according to his will through the wilderness and uh, leading us ever faithfully along the path that we must take. That is the faithfulness of, the, of God, uh, obvious. But besides that, and necessarily coupled with that, is the other side of this thing, and that is the obedience of the people. The obedience of the people is also necessary if it's going to work. The cloud did not drag them through the wilderness. The cloud did not push them through the wilderness. The cloud did not hypnotize them in a trance of some sort and pied piper them through the wilderness. Nothing like that. The cloud moved. They were expected to move with it. There's no suggestion that it was ever any other way. Who would ever think of being left behind in the wilderness? Uh, that would be pretty crazy. But the people must exercise their will to follow. Note the recurrence of that phrase, at the commandment of the Lord they journeyed. At the commandment of the Lord they stayed or they camped, they pitched. That phrase actually in this section occurs seven times. <clears throat> Paul writes to the Corinthian uh, in, in when he's writing about practice of the New Testament and, and its functional uh, business in 1 Corinthians 14. He says, if any man think he is spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. At the commandment of the Lord, we do thus. At the commandment of the Lord, we do thus. That is how the Spirit of God leads. And it is our business to follow. It is our business to obey it. How well do we follow? Uh, that's a good question, isn't it? That's one we need to contemplate. How well do we follow how the Spirit of God leads? Uh, Paul writes to the Ephesians, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of, attention, uh, of, of redemption. In other words, there's a, there's a very real possibility of us grieving and uh, <clears throat> and in the Thessalonians, he writes, quench not the spirit. In other words, there's possibility of us not following so well, not obeying. And uh, and I guess if you are honest as I am, uh, you know that that's very true and a very a real problem for us. Year by year, we'll talk more, I think, about this in a minute, but <clears throat> the final note of the guidance of the cloud, I want to finish <clears throat> the text here, is the verses 21 through 23 in chapter 9. It has a little different flavor to it, so I want to emphasize or mention that too. So verse uh, 9, 21, it was so, when the cloud abode from evening until the morning, and that the cloud was taken up in the morning, well, then they journeyed. 
whether it was by day or by night that the cloud was taken up, they journeyed, or whether it were two days or a month or a year that the cloud tarried upon the tabernacle, remaining thereon, the children of Israel bowed in their tents and journeyed not. But when it was taken up, they journeyed. At the commandment of the Lord, they rested in their tents, and at the commandment of the Lord, they journeyed. They kept the charge of the Lord at the commandment of the Lord by the hand of Moses. So that phrase of the command of the Lord seven times, this, uh, this last little phrase is not talking so much about where the cloud went, but when it went. When the cloud moved, they were to move. Whether it was morning or night, whether it was a, a one day or two days or a week or a month or a year, when it moved, they moved. And when it stayed, they stayed. So you have the two, the two sides of this. Where it went, they followed. And when it went, they moved. That was the guidance of the cloud for these children of Israel through the wilderness. But that makes me uh, a real nice picture in my mind of how uh, God was guiding his people through the wilderness. And I can picture that and I can follow that real nice. But then I try and bring those lessons to my own life and I have a little more difficulty trying to understand, well, when does the Spirit of God move and I'm supposed to follow it? I, I, don't, I don't sense a, a movement like that. I don't, I can't, I can't, I don't even, I don't see how that happens in my life. And so we have to recognize, of course, that we're not talking about a geographical movement for the New Testament church. We're not, we're not marching to a, to Israel uh, in these days, but we are definitely moving. At least we ought to be. As the cloud was leading the children of Israel through the wilderness, he was taking them to the enjoyment of all that God had promised them in the promised land. That was the idea, right? Uh, he's promised them a land flowing with milk and honey, and he's going to lead them from Sinai to that promised land, to the enjoyment of the inheritance that he has given them, to the promises fulfilled for them that he has promised to their fathers. He's going to lead them into the possession of all that he has given them. They're going to actually possess it and enjoy it at some rate. That's the, that's the goal, right? So that's kind of what we're headed here. We're headed to enter into the enjoyment of and the, and the, uh, and the real possession of all that God has promised to his people, all the wonderful promises that we have from God. And so the Holy Spirit is leading us into the full possession and enjoyment of God's promises. Hmm. I, <clears throat> I, as I was thinking about that, I was thinking, you know, I, perhaps, and to me it, it makes sense, if we look at Ephesians chapter 1, for example. Ephesians chapter 1. We have there what an old preacher once many years ago uh, J.M. Davies, he's long gone to be with the Lord. Uh, I remember him when he was in Fargo. Uh, once he, he says, uh, oh, what we have in the first chapter of Ephesians, these are the grapes of Eskal. He said, <laughs> the grapes of Eskal. 
Those were those grapes, that bundle of grapes. Remember when the spies went into the land? They went into the valley of Eskal, and they found these grapes that were so large, so full, so wonderful, that they bore them on a pole between two men to carry them out on their shoulder. Now that's a bundle of grapes. And uh, he said these beautiful things in Ephesians chapter 1 are like the grapes of Eskal. They're, they're, they're more than we can carry along. They're, they're full and rich. And, uh, and so <clears throat> these, these may be this wonderful list of what God has given us in Christ are, uh, are like, it's like the promised land for the Christian in many ways. Can you, can, you, can you track with me on that regard? Kind of like the promised land. Now we have them. And in, and in many ways, the children of Israel could say that land is ours. But they weren't there to enjoy it yet. They, they weren't in it. And, and we have these things. They are ours in Christ. And we do somewhat enjoy them. I'm saying somewhat. I think we're missing... Uh, a lot of it, and the Spirit of God wants to lead us into a deeper and more and fuller enjoyment of what we have in Christ. Let me just read a little of this. It says, Blessed be, in verse 3, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is the promised land for the Christian. His, the promises that he's given us and the blessings be, that are ours in Christ Jesus. Verse 4, according as has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children or sons by Jesus Christ to himself. Uh, I, You know, honestly, I don't think many of us I'm speaking for myself anyway. Maybe you know better than I do, but I don't really enter into the fullness of this, even understanding what it's saying, much less do I really believe that I have gathered up and enjoy these things for myself in Christ. There is much here. Well, I'll just give you a simple, a real simple example. We read it this morning. Derek did. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. I have the forgiveness of sins, and we all know that, and we all love that idea. We're so glad that, we're sin that our sins are forgiven. But do we really enter into the fullness of even that? I, and, the, and let me illustrate my thought here. <clears throat> I was uh, <clears throat> driving up <clears throat> on my way to work once many years ago, and, uh, but I'd been a believer for many years, so don't, don't, you know, I, sh I knew this. I knew my sins were forgiven. Right? I knew it. And I, and I hit some black ice on the road, and I'm going a little too fast, and my car starts losing. I lose control. I'm headed for the ditch sideways, and I know I'm going to roll. I'm gonna, this car is going to flip. There's no, there's no doubt about that. And I also think, I'm quite sure, that this is my death. That's what's in my mind. As I hit that ditch and the car begins to careen over, I think to myself, and this thought comes immediately to my mind. I think, you've had this coming. That's, 
that's what, that's what thought comes to my mind. You've had this coming for a long time. Do I know what forgiveness is? Do you see how that little tricky thought betrays that in me, somehow, even in view of Calvary, I think that God holds a grudge. Can it be? And you know, the Spirit of God is wanting to root out those problems, those that wicked, what is it called, evil, uh, what is it called in Hebrews chapter 3, beware lest there be in you uh, an evil heart of unbelief. I think that's what it says. This, uh, this chapter just rich with what God has given us in Christ. And yet I think that every time that we run into difficulty and problems and issues in life, we are betraying somehow a lack of faith, of understanding, of real believing, of really receiving the riches that God has given us in Christ. We fall short. We just don't quite. You know, we all have, we all have psychological issues. Every one of us have a certain psychosis or another. <laughs> I, I, things that little, little issues in my mind, my life, and so they, they stem sure from whatever kind of unfortunate circumstances in childhood and all of these kinds of things. And they have, we have been wounded one way or another or damaged goods somehow along the way. And, and uh, sin has done that. And, 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 and that has, and we have built up certain defense mechanisms against those things in our lives. And somehow we get along fairly well, most of us. <clears throat> Keeping those things carefully in Pandora's box. But uh, the, that... That is, the, all of that, all of that is dealt with by Christ. And God has released us and freed us and, and forgiven us and saved us and blessed us and changed us completely. What we haven't done is gotten into it and really taken hold of what he has done for us. And so the Spirit of God has to take us through the wilderness. And it's going to be wilderness experiences that are going to root out those problems in us and help us to learn to know what we have in Christ and to enjoy it. Help us to bring us ultimately into the enjoyment of the promises of God, the reality of the love of God. He started right out talking about in love he's done these things for us. In love, who knows and who even begins to uh, really never question the love of God? I, I say, um, as I consider, I, uh, I, I can't even talk about it. It's just 
This, I think, is what the Spirit of God would do. You remember the old the disciples? There they were in the boat with the Lord Jesus, and the storm comes up, and their fear and their dread, they finally expose the fact that their confidence, their confidence is in the boat. Their confidence is in physical things. We are very confident in the things that we are used to doing in our physical way of taking care of ourselves, and we make lip service to our belief in the all-providing and all-ever-present living God in our lives. But there's this constant struggle there. Oh, ye of little faith, says the Lord Jesus. And that that's our wilderness experience. Then the Spirit of God, this cloud, this ever-present, oh, it was, that's how it was. It's hovering there always, never leaves, never forsakes. This, the cloud never took off and just beat it through the wilderness and they couldn't keep up. He never did that. It was always there. And the next side of it is, am I sticking with him? There's more to the leadership that we, uh, and guidance of the Holy Spirit and uh, a guidance of God in for the children of Israel in the wilderness. It's not just simply that the cloud moved and they followed the cloud. And the cloud stopped and they stopped. It's not that simple. That's not the whole story, I'm saying. There's, there's one more element to it that's important, and it's brought out in chapter 10. We have like four minutes, and I think we could cover it easily. <laughs> in chapter 10, it begins with these words. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Make thee two trumpets of silver, of a whole piece. And there's some, that, that word is the same word translated beaten work. Of beaten work thou shalt make them, that thou mayest use them for the calling of the assembly and for the journeying of the camps. And when they shall blow with them, all the assemblies shall assemble themselves to thee at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And if they shall blow but one trumpet, then the princes and the heads of the thousands of Israel shall gather themselves together unto thee. But if you blow, when you blow an alarm, then the camps that lie on the east part shall go forward. When you blow an alarm the second time, then the camps that lie on the south side shall take their journey, and they, sh they shall blow an alarm for their journeys. But when the congregation is to be gathered together, ye shall blow, but ye shall not sound the alarm. And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall blow with the trumpets, and they shall be to you for an ordinance forever throughout your generations. And if you go to war in your land against the enemy that oppresses you, then you shall blow an alarm with the trumpets, and you'll be remembered before the Lord your God, and you shall be saved from your enemies. And also, in the day of your gladness, and in your solemn days, and in the beginning of your months, you shall blow with the trumpets over all your burnt offerings, over your sacrifices, and over your peace offerings, that they may be to you for a memorial before your God. I am the Lord your God." So that now is, an, is, is another uh, element to the guidance of God for the children of Israel through the wilderness, the trumpets. 
it is interesting to me <clears throat> that this is only one of these are the third of three. There's only three articles of furniture, if you will, that are made out of a one-piece beaten work. And that is the mercy seat with the chair beam above. That was beaten out of one piece. The lampstand, which we had emphasized back in chapter 8, that was a beaten work out of a single piece. And now these trumpets are a single piece beaten out, and that's the same word used, and it's the only place that word is used, is about these three articles. I think that's kind of interesting, tying them together in a marvelous, in an interesting way. In each case, this is just strictly the priests have opportunity to handle these. That They blow the trumpets. That's the priest's duty, not uh, anyone else. It takes some spiritual discernment and exercise, I guess, in order to blow these trumpets in the proper manner and whatever. It is designed to assemble. It is designed to... Uh, um, direct in the marches uh, and so forth, when to move out and so forth. So these <clears throat> these twin trumpets, I think it's interesting that there are two silver trumpets and not simply one. Two, of course, I think probably because, there's probably a couple of reasons why. One of them is because uh, <clears throat> I think you needed uh, two as a is the number of confirmed witness. And so it makes sense that there's two uh, to confirm the witness, because this what these trumpets are doing are confirming the uh, movement of the cloud and, and instructing the children of Israel to follow after it and move on with it. It's like a, it's like a confirmation. You have the spirit, um, the cloud moving, and the trumpet sounds that's a, con that's a double confirmation of where we're headed out here now. It's time to move, and so forth. That's the way it works, and that's the way it did work as they went through the wilderness. But they kept these trumpets continuously, whether they were traveling the wilderness or not. Uh, these were with their for generations forever uh, to be used. The trumpet will show up uh, for the children of Israel in a future day, uh, sounding, I know, assembling, notes and probably sounding alarm notes. I think that that's part of why there's the trumpets in the book of the Revelation. And of course, it's, it's uh, implied very heavily in the fact that there was the feast of the trumpets, that they were to uh, assemble together and, and commit uh, and, and, uh, and repent. and repent uh, sober their hearts before the Lord on that solemn feast of the trumpets preparing for that uh, day of atonement. <clears throat> the trumpet in the New Testament, Paul makes an, uh, picks up the analogy and teaches us, I think we can use his precedent in understanding the analogy of the trumpet. He says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians uh, 14, I think it is again. That if the trumpet sounds uh, an unclear sound, who's going who's gonna to follow it? And what he's talking about is the teaching of the Word of God in the, in the assembly. And 
Uh, he's dealing with the problem of uh, the, the problem they had with tongues and so forth. Now, uh, tongues do not, uh, we're not producing a clear, followable sound and intelligible. He's uh, admonishing them concerning prophecy in its superior uh, use in the assembly when people are gathered together, that the trumpet needs to make a clear sound so that the people know what they're being told to do, whether we're being called to assemble, called, uh, is it an alarm? So we're to march, we're to take up arms, which, which is it going, what is going on here? Um, the preaching of the word of God is the New Testament counterpart to the silver trumpets. And Paul, in Acts chapter 20, as he's talking to the Ephesian elders, he warns them of things that are coming in the future. Uh, he says that there's going to be uh, grievous wolves that will enter in among them, sparing not the flock, and that there would also be uh, men of their own rank that would arise and speak perverse things drawing disciples after themselves. That's in verses 29 and 30 of Acts 20. And, and Paul says, Therefore, watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn every one of you day and night with tears. In verse 32 he says, Now, considering the fact that he's about to leave and never to return, verse 32 he says, Now, brethren, I commend you to, the, to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them that are sanctified. I commend you to God, you might say. You have the cloud and you have the word of God. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. And that will bring you into the inheritance. It's able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all them that are sanctified give you those the guidance, protection, and the guidance of the living God in your midst, the cloud and the word. And that will bring you into the fuller enjoyment of all that God has given us in Christ. And so to us, we're still marching in the wilderness. Our goal, our goal, I think the, the real promised land that we're headed for, the real goal is maybe what is outlined in Ephesians 4, where he's speaking to them about their movement, how the church is supposed to move, and function, he talks about the gifts and so forth, and our ministry one to another, our work in the ministry. And where is it all headed for? Verse 13, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and 
carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and the cunning craftiness whereby they lay in white to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up unto him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. The growing up unto Christ, that's where we're headed. That's where the Spirit of God and the, by the Word of God Confirmed by the word of God, every movement of the spirit, confirmed by his word, will lead us into a growing up unto Christ in all things. May that ever be our experience, and, and uh, may the Lord help us. We would like to commend us to God and the word of his grace. Father, thank you again for your goodness to us. We thank you for what you have promised us in Christ. And may we somehow, by your grace, in the moving and working and ministry of thy Holy Spirit, the teaching of thy precious word, may we be obedient in all things and grow up unto Christ in all things for his glory. So lead us, we pray, and we thank you, and help us to understand what you would have us to know. Pray in Jesus' name.